Welcome to Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. I'm really glad that you're here uh, with us. So let's jump into uh, Romans uh, today. We are in Romans chapter 14, verses 13 uh, through 23. I'm going to make it nice and awkward for you. I'm going to have you stand up and let's read uh, the word of the Lord together. It says this, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, uh, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself uh, for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is... The word of the Lord, you guys can be seated. Father, we ask that you would draw near to us in this. There's much going on in this text, in this chapter, in general. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us. Let us see the reality that was penned so long ago. Let us see the beauty that we are called into, the beauty of uh, a family and and unity um, and and mutual submission in ways. Let us see that, God. So I pray that you would draw near to us. Would you be glorified? May our hearts be encouraged in you where needed and convicted where needed as well. We pray that in your name, God. Amen. So over time, uh, you'll hear things said uh, fairly often like, hey, the Bible is your roadmap in life. Uh, just follow it and, and you'll know which way to go and, and things will be okay. Just, just let the Bible show you uh, the path and you're just going to kind of know what to do and, and how to live. And in, in some ways, I completely agree with that sentiment. The Bible is uh, useful and it is authoritative and it's what shows us how to live and, and what to do and it guides us in matters of faith. It shows us how to submit to the will of the Father. But here's the thing, the Bible isn't all about us. Uh, so the Bible is useful to teach us and grow us in righteousness, but the Bible is not in any way, shape or form an exhaustive encyclopedia that is going to have every single issue throughout the course of history that you'll ever run into in life inside of it and exactly what to do when you do run into said thing. So you're not going to be able to flip in your index of your Bible and figure out, hey, is bourbon okay to drink? It's not there. I've looked. Like there's lots of things you're going to wonder and you're not going to be able to find it in there. There's a lot of things going on that the Bible's just silent over. So that means that we're going to run up into a situation where you and I are going to face things in our lives where we have to make judgment calls over how do I handle this thing. If the Bible is silent about this or topically it's silent about this, how in the world do I decide what to do here with this thing that the Bible doesn't really talk about? What Paul's leading us to understand is it's up to your conscience at that point if the Bible is 
actually silent. It's up to your conscience to help you decide how to navigate those things in life that the Bible is silent over. So these are uh, what are maybe gray areas or areas that the Bible just doesn't speak into. And that's exactly what Paul talks about all throughout chapter 14. So in the text that we covered last week, that was at hand. And in the text this week, this is at hand. The difficult part for us is the church, the people of God, Christians, us, throughout the course of history have had a really hard time navigating the gray areas in loving ways. Like we tend to fight and wage war and destroy and all of this other stuff back and forth with each other over these gray areas and and it's not meant to be that way. Uh, At the core of what is at hand here when we're talking about our conscience is the concept of, of Christian liberty. What are you free to do? What is okay? What can you accept and enjoy and do and be absolutely fine with and your heart be okay with it? And what are things that you need to reject and abstain and kind of stay away with? What we find in these gray areas or the areas that the Bible is silent about is many believers and some of these things that really are kind of neutral are going to come up with different answers about those things, of whether they can partake or abstain. And further, like real brothers and sisters, we're going to fight real good about those disagreements. Paul wants to make sure that we aren't breaking community or fellowship when we find these gray areas and we decide differently about them. Our fellow uh, believers and us should not be separating or breaking communion or, or, or changing churches or disowning each other over matters of opinion or conscience ever. And hear me, there most certainly are things to fight about. There are things to contend over and hold the line and say, that is not okay, or this is okay. There there are things to really put your foot down. But as we talked about last week, we need to be wiser on our mountains to die upon. Every issue is not an issue to fight your brother over. Some things you just need to let go and learn how to love the other person because the Bible doesn't tell them, hey, they have to do X, Y, or Z in that area. So as chapter 14 opened last week, uh, and notice that all of this kind of goes together, Paul began to speak about specific scenarios of these kind of gray areas. The first one was the issue uh, of meat, probably meat that was offered uh, to idols back then in Rome. So here's kind of the scenario. If you didn't have a lot of money and people went to uh, said uh, God and offered a meat sacrifice and then left it there, someone else would pop in, take that meat and be like, I can sell this at the market. And they'd go and they'd sell it and you get a good cut of meat for like pennies on the dollar, so to speak. So a lot of people are like, hey man, we could go eat well because that guy made that sacrifice and that's what's happening here. Many people would go, but I can't do that because I don't want to be associated with idol worship. So that's kind of at hand when they're talking about the meat issue. And then also pork is in mind since the Old Testament, uh, Jews did not eat pork. And the other thing that Paul brings up is the Sabbath and Old Testament uh, rituals. What we saw in the text last week is not only were those two issues brought up, but Paul actually kind of opens up two categories of believers for us in the text as well. What he calls the weaker brother and the stronger brother in the faith. And these are important to understand. These designations that Paul uses for different believers, they have nothing to do with a person's spiritual strength. Uh, And they have nothing to do with um, a a person's ability to fight off temptation. So the stronger brother isn't the guy who who can fight off sin better than the weaker brother. This idea of stronger or weaker had more to do with the understanding of a certain person 
of the gospel. Remember the drum that Paul has beaten all through Romans is the drum of grace. You're saved not by your do's and don'ts, not by your own merit or your own perfection or, or the, the righteousness that you can get on your own because you can't get any on your own. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. He's, he's done that the entire time. So the stronger believer knows fully that their acceptance before God is all of grace. I earn nothing. Like he didn't go 90% and I went 10. Like it's all him. So because the stronger believer understands the gospel this way, uh, they're not trying to earn or re-earn what is already freely given to them by Jesus. Uh, They've thrown the full weight of their belief into Jesus's work alone. It's all him. Thank goodness So what this does is it leads the stronger believer to feel a a peace, not to act crazy and do whatever they want, but they have a peace to rest in and celebrate and worship in what Christ has done, which leads to them feeling freer to walk in their liberties as a Christian. They're not worried about, hey, I'm going to make him mad. It's all Jesus. So they're they're not turning into licentious people, but they're like, hey, man, we we can enjoy these good and godly things. It's all Jesus anyway. Uh, The weaker brother, on the other hand, is still trying to maybe earn what is already theirs. They worry maybe deep in their heart that they're going to slip up or if they don't meet the bar of expectation that they set, that maybe God will be disappointed with them or or love them less or or frustrated with them or that God's going to lash out and make them pay for it. So this weaker believer, they love Jesus. They believe in God. They, they, they are legitimate brothers in the faith. They're not heretics. They love Jesus. They just seem to be really scared that they're going to mess up things between them and God. So they're more easily going to not walk in the liberties that could be theirs because they're afraid that if they're doing that, that they're going to be sinning, right? It's, it's a belief that, man, I, I just, I don't, I don't want to lose it. I don't want God to be mad. It's not a hinging all on Jesus. So they're, hey, man, if I do that, maybe God's going to get upset with me. They just don't understand the full elements of grace in the gospel. So much of Paul's point in the text covered last week was a warning for the weaker brother. And the warning looked a little bit like this. Don't judge the stronger brother for walking in their liberty. Uh, Don't condemn your brother or a person as unsaved or a sinner or, or, or all of these other things because they're doing something that God never said that they couldn't. Because this is what happens in the church. One, one believer all of a sudden associates something as wrong that the Bible never says is wrong and then begins to judge other people on whether they do it or not. And Paul says, hey, don't do that. Don't condemn them. Don't judge them. It's fine for the weaker brother to abstain from some things that they feel compelled to. You're fine with doing that. Just don't turn into a legalist and demand that everyone else follow suit. Don't judge other people's spiritual maturity by the rules and things that you set in place that God never talks about. The stronger brother was also warned not to despise the weaker. Like, hey, man, you're free in your liberties. Paul says, hey, don't, don't look at the one who abstains from things that they really don't have to and be like, man, that guy's so dumb. Be, be careful with that. Don't, don't, don't let your heart get bitter towards them or feel like they're crazy because their consciences lead them in a certain way. Now, Paul laid a great framework for us as well in Christian liberties by saying, here's a great way to understand if something is okay or not. In matters of conscience that you're, freely, uh, you're free to decide, he says, when you approach these issues in life, just make sure in your liberty that the things that you feel free to do are honoring God and generating thankfulness. Right, so if, you, if you're doing something and it's not honoring God and it's not generating thankfulness, he's like, hey, maybe you should watch a little bit of that. But this is the criteria. Uh, honor God, grow thankfulness for God in the community. 
Now in the latter part, Paul's going to speak more towards the stronger believer, the one who feels free, the one who's like, hey man, that's not wrong. It's totally fine. I can do those things. He's speaking specifically to this one, the one who does not feel compelled to abstain from things that he's free to. And the message will be this, enjoy your freedom. Enjoy your Christian liberty. But don't you dare flaunt it or use it at the expense of the brother or sister next to you. Enjoy, but be careful. Uh, This is what Paul means when he says at the opening of the text, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This means don't do something that's going to impede uh, the, the spiritual progress of another believer in the church. Uh, Don't do something that's going to damage the fellowship uh, of another Christian. Do not do something that's going to stop the discipleship of uh, another Christian. So he's saying, hey man, enjoy the things that you're free to do. Just be really careful for how it affects the people around you because you don't want to hurt them. Now watch this for a moment. What's the modern language of our day? What's the mantra of the day? Wasn't it something like, hey, you do you and if people don't like it, forget them? You, you harness the desire of your heart. You, you lead with your heart. You do what your heart feels. And if other people don't understand, then you don't need those type of people. Just, just forget them. And, and maybe that's the PG way to say it because they say it in some other ways that aren't that nice. But the prevailing thought in our day is you must be able to do anything that you desire. Uh, you need uh, not to learn to love the people around you, but you need to learn to love yourself better by listening first and foremost to your own heart stumbling blocks in our culture are when you stop yourself or someone else from doing something that their heart wants to do. That's considered the stumbling block in the world. When you stop someone from from pursuing the desires of their heart. So the mindset of our current culture is the opposite of what we see in the Bible. It's actually a very selfish one. It doesn't take into consideration anyone else. It just takes into consideration what you want. While the Bible says, hey, consider your brothers and sisters in Christ with what you do. And then also, he presses it further. Oh, and at some points, you're going to yield what you want to do if the consequence is harm to the people around you. Are you catching the difference between what the word says and what culture says? What we notice if we pick our heads up and, and we look around in the culture is that autonomy and personal freedom and quote-unquote rights have become our idols. They're the God that we worship. They're what we bow down to. It's just, I just need to be able to do whatever I want. This autonomy has changed it all. Autonomy has swallowed up the ethic of community to our shame. You understand that? My, me doing me has swallowed up and destroyed the health of, of, of community because we're willing to sacrifice the well-being of other people all the time if it means an individual can do what they feel like doing. This is, again, remember chapter 12 through where we're at right now, all of this has been focused on love. That mindset of me over you and forget you if you don't like what I want to do, that's the antithesis of love. It's the opposite. It is the epitome of self-centeredness. And Paul says to us, church, this isn't how you and me are supposed to live. Like you can't control what everyone else does, but as the body of Christ, the, the, the bride, brothers and sisters, the family that, that God has brought together, the world may do that, but you don't. That's not how we treat each other. And I hope things are beginning to kind of fall in line and make a little bit of sense to you. This is why I love exegetical preaching. The widespread cultural mantra of self over community 
is exactly why the opening text of chapter 12 that Blake preached at the beginning of July is such a thing that we need to hear on repeat. We are around 2,000 years after this book of Romans was written, 2,000 years afterwards, and still it's as relevant today as it was back then that we have to refuse to be conformed to the world, but we instead need to let our hearts be transformed by the renewing of our minds and our hearts through Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Here's the thing. If you're a believer and the only water that you drink in is the culture's, if the only thing that you hear, the only truth that you get is what you find in the culture, if that's all you hear, all you see uh, around you, all you scroll through on your phone, the only thing on the, on the articles you're reading, if, if that's the only water you get is what is in the culture, then you are being conformed to the world whether you admit it or not because it's the only truth that you're taking in. But if you live in the culture that has that message, but you still take in the word on your own, you listen to gospel-centered preaching, and you let others gospel you in your community, other brothers and sisters, well, then you have a chance to stave off being conformed to the world. Paul's message over and over. Hey, be careful. Be careful what you hear. Be careful what you listen to. Be careful whatever the culture is molding you. Let the word mold you amongst community. In verse 14, Paul goes back to referencing the food example from earlier, uh, specifically that of meat. Saying to the stronger believer that we know nothing food-wise is unclean. Remember, they're talking about meat. He's like, hey, guys, we get it. We know, like, I know and you know there is nothing wrong with that meat. Like, it's delicious. If they're not there, we're all just, like, going to eat it. It's great. There's nothing wrong with it. But in the Old Testament, Jews were required by the civil and ceremonial law to stay away from certain things, most notably pork, and there's some other types of foods as well. Uh, so this is why they had a problem with meat back then uh, and, and why things like bacon and pork were a big deal. But Jesus had proclaimed, even though in the Old Testament, all of these ceremonial laws like, hey, stay away from this, don't do this. Jesus comes and he's proclaiming that he has fulfilled the law in himself, in his life and his death and his resurrection. He has freed us from these civil and ceremonial categories of the law in the New Testament. That's why we're not sacrificing a goat this morning. Right? You see that all over the, the Old Testament. Why are we not sprinkling blood and doing all that other stuff? Because Jesus accomplished that. Like We don't have to. He's the sacrifice for all sacrifices. We don't have to do that anymore. So that's why we're not doing sacrifices here. It's why we're not uh, like caught up in, if you've, if you've read the Old Testament in the beginning of the New, it's why we're not hyper-focused on circumcision the way that they are. And it's why we're not fo following all of these feasts the way that they were. If you were told for ages right, that, the pork was unclean, that it's defiling you, that if you're taking it, you, you, you're defiling yourself and you're not trusting in God. If you're told for ages and your grandparents and patriarchs and all the people have told you, there's one rule, don't, don't touch the pig, right? You've been told this forever. And then all of a sudden you're told, no, 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 it's fine now. It's fine now? Like, are you, are you joking? That's the tension that they're in the middle of. There are many people who are confused. They're going, I don't understand how it's fine now. And we have the, the blessing of 2,000 years later seeing some things that they didn't. They, they thought, hey, man, if I touch that meat, maybe I'm still sinning. So some of the believers were just going like, hey, it's been wrong forever, and I kind of still think it's wrong, and it's mixed with some idol worship. So I think my posture might just be I may not touch it. Like, this is what was happening here. They were being cautious. So Paul's message was for those people uh, who think it's unclean still, he says, if you think it's unclean, then to you it actually is unclean. Uh, so don't 
mess with it. Don't eat it. He's telling the, the stronger believer, okay, for your weaker brother who feels like they can't eat meat, they're still struggling on whether it's wrong, he's telling them, hey, don't push them to partake. Right? Just, just leave them alone. Yes, it's fine to eat. Yes, it's clean. Yes, there's no problem sinfully to, to eat it. But if you push your other brothers who feel like it's wrong to partake in it, if you push them to eat it, they're going to feel like they've sinned. And when we feel like we've sinned or violated God's law, what do we do? We run and we hide. So he's saying, hey, be really careful about pushing the other people who think it's wrong to do these things because it's going to maybe sear their conscience and make them run from God and run from community. It's fine to have, but be really careful about pushing the other people to things that they feel is wrong inside. You eat, you enjoy, don't, don't push them. And here's maybe a helpful way to think of it. Just like the legalist should not require everyone to abstain from the things that they feel are wrong and aren't, the stronger believer should not push the weaker brother to partake in everything that they feel like is okay. This is maybe a picture of what actual tolerance would look like in a biblical community. God has said this is okay, so I'll partake in it. Brother, sister, if, if there's a struggle in your heart for you to do it, man, that's okay. I, I love you enough to say, like, hey, that, that's, that's fine. Over matters of opinion, Paul says, don't push too hard. And there's issues of pride there that we need to work through. Like we want other people to know that we're right and our posture's right. And like, you need to come to my side. No, just leave them alone. Don't see their conscience. Don't drive them away from the father. Let the sovereignty of God work out some of those issues in his own time. If you look at you now, if you've been in the faith for a while, if you look at you now compared to 10 years ago, you've probably learned some things. In the sovereignty of God, he's matured you. Paul says, hey man, just leave them alone. Let, let God do his thing. You don't, you don't have to push them. Verse 15 pushes the scenario even further, though. Not only should we not push others to do things that their conscience tells them is sinful to do, we also should refrain from doing them in front of those believers. Right? He went further. Not only don't push, but there's some circles that you should abstain in yourself. Why? Because it would be unloving for you to relish in your freedom knowing that there's a certain issue that causes some real grief and anxiety and just some, some hurt in another person's heart for you to be like, it's free, it's fine. And they're like, ah, struggling. He goes, that is unloving to flaunt what you're free to do next to the brother or sister who's just really having a hard time with it. You should abstain. The prevailing idea is, as John Stott puts it, true love limits its own liberty. If you really love someone, you won't have to be told no. You'll lay it down to let that love go for that person. You'll begin to ask things like, am I loving my brother or sister with this action or am I hurting them? See, the strong are not wrong in partaking in things that they're free to, but they're wrong if they do it at the harm of the fellow believers around them that God has called them to be united with. There's the catch.
good IPA. Love each other better by laying down things that will hurt others around you. Now, this text needs some clarification, though, because at times it gets applied wrongly. And I, and I would just press this out there. It gets applied wrongly by either the person who just doesn't know or the legalist who wants to demand that you do only what they want. This isn't saying don't do things that you're free to do in Christ out of the world of imaginary what-ifs. See, we can get into this situation where we think it's not saying on the off chance that someone somewhere at some point will see you do something and being hurt and be hurt by it, don't ever do anything that you're free to do. That's not what it's saying. And, And that's how it gets applied wrongly to alcohol all the time. Hey, man, you could be out in public and a weaker brother, they could just see you drink and just fall off the wagon. You, would, you wouldn't even know it. Like, that, that's not what it means here. He's saying if you know a certain believer, a brother or sister that you know, a, a member of the community, if you know a specific person struggles with a specific thing, say alcohol, maybe they come from a rough story of, of addiction and struggle and drunkenness and, and, and hurt, and, and they now feel like this tension with alcohol, like it's a, a sin, so they always kind of abstain. And, and you know, even like when you bring up the topic of alcohol, they just kind of get like anxious and bothered by it because it associates with these old hard stories, and, and, and they just kind of stay away from it because of that. The understanding is when you have dinner with that person in your home or in their home or in public, Though you're free to drink a beer, you shouldn't, though. Like, at that point, love that specific person by laying down that specific thing on that specific moment. It's about real people, not what if imaginary situations. What if I accidentally hurt someone? No, no, no. You and I know if we hurt people. Love the real person in front of you by laying down some of your liberties at some points if it'll hurt the person in front of you. The other part is not just hurt, if it makes it hard, if you enjoying your liberty makes it harder for a person just to feel welcomed among you, right? Maybe they're not falling off the wagon or doing these hard things, but if you enjoying your liberty just makes them be like, I just don't feel like I have a home here. I don't know. I just don't feel like I fit in. He's going, hey, you should probably lay that down. Again, in the clarification as well, this text is about the weaker brother, not the legalist. A legalist isn't at risk of stumbling over liberties. They're just jerks about them. You drinking a beer in front of them is not going to cause them to stumble. It's just going to cause them to become indignant and think they're better than you, closer to God, more loved, more stars on their holy paper. It will cause them, like the example in the New Testament when Jesus speaks of the two men praying, it'll cause them to thank God they're not a sinner like you. Thank God. They're not like that guy. In front of that person, I would not abstain. I'll take, I'll take a beer, please. Why? Because you abstaining is going to validate them. And it's going to reinforce their wrong belief about the gospel. Remember, they're believing that if I do these things and don't do these things, I earn my way before God. And since you did that, you haven't earned as much as I have. So, so you're going, hey, I'm not going to play that game with you. This is not about love. I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to believe in the gospel and, I, and I'm going to enjoy my liberties. You going along with, they want, with what they want will reinforce all over again their wrong belief and it will cause them to double down on putting it on someone else again. Sam Storm says... 
uh, in a roundabout way, this isn't exactly how he said it, but I loved it. He said, to the legalist, oppose them to their face and then abstain for the weaker brother. And both of these are the most loving thing that you can do. So to oppose the legalist is to, to show them the true gospel. You're living in the wrong pattern. And to abstain for the weaker brother is going, man, I don't want to do anything to hurt you. So I'll do both where it's required. And both of those are actually the loving thing to do. Now, full disclosure, probably 10, 12 years ago, I'm bad with time frames. This idea of laying down freedoms was quite hard for me. Uh, not because I wasn't willing to love my brothers and sisters well, or at least so I thought, but more so because it felt hypocritical for me to enjoy certain things at certain times and then not at others. Like I struggled with that. Like, okay, there's a sphere of life where I'll enjoy liberties and with some people, but then with other people, I'll reject them. And I have a weird mind of absolute truths. And so I felt like doing something with some person and then not doing it in front of another, I felt like a hypocrite and a liar. So I wouldn't as quickly lay down freedoms because my mind was more hung up on absolute truth than it was love. I thought wrongly, hey, I'm, I'm not gonna share you the truth of the freedom of the gospel. If I lay down this thing, it's absolutely fine to do. I'm setting a bad message for you and I'm lying. I'm not showing you the real Jesus. So I'm gonna keep doing it. And that was wrong because what that does is it prioritizes truth above them. I was sending the, the wrong message. And at that point, I needed to hear verse 17 through 19 of the text where Paul says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Are you enjoying that or not is not the precedent that shows them Jesus. It's much more than that. The, the kingdom of God is about righteousness. It's about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I, I, I wish this could set deeper for us. That's the beauty of what we're called to, church. Peace and joy together. Peace and joy. So I needed to hear the call to pursue what makes for peace rather than pursue what makes me feel like I'm truthful. I needed to hear the call to pursue what mutually upbuilds rather than the call to, to make sure I was doing the, the, the right thing at that moment. I was too focused on not feeling like a liar or a fake to where I was blind to loving well the person right in front of me. And Paul's message for me back then, and maybe you today, if it's only me, whatever, that's fine too. But his message is see how precious your liberties are. Because there's people who are like, none of them matter. No, they matter a lot. See how precious your liberties are and how much joy it is to have these things that you're free to do because Christ paid it all. See how precious they are. But see, too, how precious the fellow believers around you are. See both of them together, not one or the other. If Christ would lay down his life, if he would endure the cross to save those who were lost in their sin, and to bring together the church, his body here on earth, if he would do that, to unite us with the gift of family, then how could we not lay down some things in life if it loves well the people that he's called us to be united to? This is the message. Your freedoms are beautiful and wonderful. Enjoy. But enjoy each other. Defend each other protect and foster unity amongst the church. What's one thing that we know? Unity gets broke real easy. So enjoy the things that you're free to do, but be careful. One theologian said it this way, do not overestimate the importance of food and drink 
and do not underestimate the importance of the kingdom of God. That is, don't overestimate the importance of your freedoms and don't underestimate the importance of the family that you have in Christ. Here's the rub. Many of us love the idea of unity and togetherness. Yeah, totally for it. Like you pro or against, I'm totally pro-unity. Love it, love it. But we're often for it until it's time to practice what we find here. See, when unity necessitates a limitation of the freedoms that we have or the wants that we have, like, eh, I'm not as drawn to unity as I thought I was, actually. I could take it or leave it. Why does that happen? Because unity costs love. That's the mistake of the world. You think unity is free. Unity, especially if we, if we want to look at the realm of the church, unity costs time, love, and the gospel. And a lot of people are going, man, I don't, I don't actually want to pay the love, though. Can we just get the unity without the love? No, no, no. Love will gladly lay down preference to see a person flourish. And man, I'm free to do this. It's fine. Well, if it's going to hurt you or damage you, man, I don't need to do that. Why? Because I love you more. I love you more than the unity. Why? Because I'm, like, I'm amazing? No, because Jesus loved me more. He, was lay, he laid down way more for me, so I'll lay down this for you because you're, you're a gift to me and I'm a gift to you and I want to I maintain unity. And Paul presses that even further in verse 19. It is the responsibility of the, the community of every believer to build up the body. It's the responsibility of the, the entirety to see the fellowship of the saints, the community built up. And what does that mean? It's not my job only to make sure we're united. And it's not just a, a missional community leader's job or just the elder's job. It is the job of the family. If you're here and you're a part, it's your job. To love and act like a healthy family is a big deal. And that will mean sometimes you have to cast off self-centeredness to lay down things that you would want to do to love the other person around you. We have these ideas that unity just happens. It doesn't just happen. It just breaks when people get selfish. Well, Paul goes, no, no, you need to see it as your job and, and, and my job and my neighbor's job. If we all would mutually submit in these ways and want to love other people more than love our own desire, man, there would be some beautiful unity happening amongst the church. Then the tail verses. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever, or from what, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The tail end of 14 may seem a, a little bit confusing in the way that it's worded, but Paul is saying, okay, our consciences, because remember in the gray areas, he goes, hey, go with your conscience. He says, our consciences are not gospel or infallible. They're not. It's not your conscience is not red letter in the Bible. Your, your conscience is, however, sacred to your own heart. So to go against your conscience is sinful. The, the, the point being, if a person feels like they should not do something, if it feels strongly, like I'm called out of this, I shouldn't be doing this, and they're not imposing on other people, but they feel like, hey, this certain thing, I can't do it. If they feel that way, if their conscience binds them from doing something that the Bible is silent over, then they should go with that feeling 
They should go ahead and, and maybe abstain the way that their conscience is leading them to. He's showing us that to go against our conscience as a believer is not an act of faith. That's what he means by anything that doesn't come from faith is a sin. If you're, if you're moving out in something that your faith knows isn't right, he, he says, hey, don't do that. To do something that we feel inside is wrong would not honor God. It would be a sin to us. I think the, the point may be, in some gray areas not mentioned in the Bible, the Holy Spirit may and probably will, for good reason, tell some of us that we should avoid some things. And when that happens, we should listen to that. We shouldn't push it away or bury it or go, but they're free to do it, so I should be free to do it. There's going to be things the Holy Spirit will lead you into and go, hey, you, sh- you shouldn't do that. Remember, the, the Holy Spirit is the, the paraclete, the helper, the, the guide, the, the counselor. And here's some realities. He may guide you in some ways that he doesn't guide me, and that's okay. Since Paul mentions drinking also in the text, remember he opens for a, a pointed reason, wine and drink, into the text. Why? Because we fought about that for a long time. I'll use this here as an example. I, I've met people who are prone to addiction and they are uh, prone to drinking too much. Um, so for them to have one drink, you may be able to sit and have one drink and be like, man, this is a great dinner, great drink. This is great. For them to have one drink is only to ignite a desire to actually have 12. It's not a, hey, this is great. I've enjoyed hanging. It's a one leads towards this unrest in the mind that doesn't stir honor and doesn't stir gratitude. One leads to, I wish I could have a ton more. And the Holy Spirit for that person will put a conviction in their heart over alcohol going like, hey man, you should abstain because it's only going to lead you to bad places. So though drinking is not a sin for the people around them, though others are free to enjoy responsibly and worshipfully, they are not. And to partake in that would be sinful. For that person, they're not even the weaker brother at that moment. They're the one who is operating out of a faith paradigm by staying away from the things that the Holy Spirit leads them towards. And this should be kind of normal. Like if we're led by the Spirit, there should be times where the Spirit should go, don't do that. And, And maybe it's forever or maybe it's for a period of time. We should honor that when we hear that and not quench that and push that down. There's a wise warning and pushback here from the beginning of the text that we saw last week. Make sure that the liberties that you enjoy have not turned into your idols and addictions. Be careful. Enjoy. Pay attention to what that liberty is doing to your heart, though. As you navigate the freedoms that you have in Christ, it's always wise to ask the Holy Spirit, hey, what are these doing in me? Are these causing honor? Are these stirring gratitude? Then maybe open it up to someone else. Hey, man, like, do you think this brings about good things for me or nah? Or maybe has this thing gone sideways on me? It's wise to ask the Holy Spirit routinely about the freedoms that you're walking in. Hey, am I walking in a good spot here? Are they healthy? I've talked to our MC and I've talked to some of my friends. Like, I've done that this month. Uh, I love bourbon, right? It, it's my jam. It's my, I got other guys like scotch, wine. I hate wine. It's gross. I, I like beer and I like bourbon. Uh, I enjoy on some nights pouring a glass and sitting in the chair and ending my night that way. Not every night. Like, I'm kind of fond of doing it sometimes. Uh, well, what's happened over the summer and July and vacation? Like, hey, man, you had quite a bit of bourbon. What's that doing to your heart? So what does that mean for me? 
it means for this month at least, I just laid it down. And I'm not going to touch that for a while. Why? Am I turning into a legalist? Am I demanding that you do that? No, 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 I'm not. I'm trying to make sure with the Holy Spirit that there's like a temperature check that that freedom, that thing that's fine to do, making sure it's at a good spot. There's an ongoing dance that I do with my liberties in my heart. We okay? We still okay? And here, here's the crazy hard part. Your heart's not static. So the reality of some of the freedoms that you walk in at one moment, it might be fine. And then all of a sudden it goes sideways. Like, it's not fine. And you have to be careful of that. And the Holy Spirit is an active job in telling you that, hey, careful, hey, slow, hey, you, should, you, you, you can enjoy, you need to abstain. There's a wise thing to be able to ask, hey, how are my freedoms doing? Are they idols or are they liberties? And I, I know several of you have done those things as well, uh, especially around the Advent season. There's things that you felt called to, to lay down. You're like, man, I, I, I'm just not going to do this for a while. I think it's affecting my worship. I don't, I don't think it's leading me to freedom and honoring of God. I think it's leading me to, to actually kind of shut down my heart and mute my heart. Some of you have done that, and it's been amazing for your heart to do. It shouldn't be what awful, sinful people do. It should be what believers do. I want to pay attention to my liberties and just make sure they're okay. Sometimes I give up things, and sometimes I don't. I, like, you're free. I'm just gonna, I, I, I want to manage my own heart. I want to be careful with my own heart. I want to give other people the liberty to speak into how my heart is doing as well. Man, you guys can come back up. As we land the plane for today, I just remind us of the overall theme of the chapter. Jesus died to unite us to himself and to unite us to each other. We are invited into close relationship with the Father in heaven, now in Jesus. And then we're given brothers and sisters that we get to walk through this world with as well. These are amazing gifts that are blessings that we are called to enjoy and walk in. But the gift of church family, we're also called to protect through love. So for this reason, we need to make sure that our freedoms and our rights in life are in a healthy spot. We need to make sure that there are things that we're doing in a way that fosters unity and the upbuilding of the people around us. We must be awake and aware of our own hearts as we're living to make sure that our rights haven't actually swallowed us up. And, and that's where the tension gets. There are times where like, man, I think my liberty swallowed me. I, th- I, I, I think they eclipsed my heart. I think, they, I think they've stolen my, my worship. These, these liberties aren't, they're not freedoms anymore. God, will you help me with those? We need to learn to love each other well and manage our own heart by doing that. So you may just ask in prayer during the closing song some questions today. God, would you show me? We're, we're, we're clicking out of summer months, right? God, would you show me, am I, am I building up or tearing down the body? Would you show me ways to, to take more seriously my job of, of, of building up the community, of, of fostering you? Would, you? would you show those to me? And, and then if you, you would be bold enough, just ask, hey, Holy Spirit, would you, would you just kind of speak into my liberties right now? Show me if they're at a good spot, if they're at a healthy spot, if they've gone sideways. Show me how my heart is doing and the beauty of how I'm living. Show me if things have gone sideways. And then we get to, in worship, take communion. Here's what I tell you. Hey, you don't always have to be on a sin hunt. Like You may be doing great in your liberties. You may already be laying them down eagerly to love other people. And you're like, man, I I find joy in that because it even unites me with other people. If you're doing that, praise God for that. That's awesome. But I think it's wise for us to ask those questions in worship today before we come to the table and remember the sacrifice of what God has done. He's united us to each other, but we're going to have to be really careful with the freedoms we have to foster unity amongst each other. Would you stand with me? We're going to take communion today.
And 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my Uh, in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.